This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is the returning one. Christiana Peterson is the author of Mystics and Misfits, Meeting God Through St. Francis and Other Unlikely Saints, is what we discussed prior in another episode in 2018. And today, we're going to be talking about her latest book, Awakened by Death, Life-Giving Lessons from the Mystics. I'm so glad you could return to the podcast. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I always enjoy talking to you. I I was saying before we before I hit record I was saying to you that it was triggering to read your book but I also wanted to mention that it was it was felt like a very necessary part of perhaps going back and revisiting different kinds of loss and grief as well and your book I thought it was really quite funny on page 12 um when you talk about enjoying going to cemeteries and um and you said to your daughter, do you know why I like to walk in the cemetery? And she said, because you love death. Yeah. <laughs> and then she says, um, worse, by the way, since Halloween, I've, I've bought, I bought right. a lot of skulls on Halloween. And so now they're like, you love skeletons. You love skulls. I'm like, well, let's temper that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Adams family over there. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it says you, you both laughed and then you said, no, it's because I actually, I'm actually afraid of death and I'm trying to look at it head on mm-hmm. and going to the cemetery helps me do that. And so here you've picked a topic that, you know, some people will try to avoid this topic yeah. for their whole lives, avoid different ways of understanding or meeting their mortality head on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious as to and now that you've kind of taken up this space and writing and, and taken up this topic, your kids think you love death and, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some of your friends or, or family yeah. notice that you're uh, occupying this space for topics mm-hmm. and what has been the reception and, and what, do, what is the typical uh, feelings about it with what you're up to? Um, I think I've gotten a pretty good reception. It may be the people that don't like mm-hmm. it don't tell me, but which <laughs> 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 is polite, I guess. <laughs> but I, I think I've had, you know, I forget because I wrote this, I finished this basically in the spring as COVID was getting, you know, ramping up a little bit. Um, but I, I, I spent that last, that past year, most of 2019 writing it. And, and it was, you know, it took me to some dark places. And I think now that I'm, I mean, we're, we're in, we're in dark places in a different sense now, but uh, I think I forget, um, sometimes the, yeah, what, what all of this unearths for people. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, and that, because I'm so comfortable now talking about it and thinking about it. Um, you know, I had a woman the other day tell me she was afraid to read my book and I, I was surprised. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I remembered, you know, of course, in in a sense, most of us are afraid to approach this. Mm -hmm. That's why we don't. It's, it's, 
the most complex and um, mysterious part of our human experience, and it seems so final, and um, we, we're not um, comfortable with the lack of control and the mystery and the suffering and mm -hmm. the pain, and so um, it frightens us. And, and then it also, as you said, brings up past griefs that either we have um, kind of cycled through or we never or we repressed or we never um, let ourselves feel. And that's mm -hmm. uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. One of the things you talk about in your book that's very helpful to people is also the history of how people have dealt with death, how close it was, and how sanitized and removed we are from it now, which makes it feel so so strange and not part of the normal rhythms of life. We're not close to the, the food we eat that has to, those animals have to die or the people who um, were normally given wakes and funerals right in the home. Uh, you spend a bunch of time talking about that and how death was treated within the church community. And I think that gives us a really great sense of how it will feel abnormal to today's audience to be speaking this much about death because we are treating our mortality in such an abnormal way. Yeah. Uh, it's really helpful to realize we are in a very, maybe our affluence uh, in, in this country makes it so, but you know, people live longer than when they get old, they kind of go away. And then there's maybe there's hospice care now, but there's also lots of nursing care that keeps, I mean, in this case with COVID, people can literally not even say goodbye to yeah. their loved ones. Yeah. And so we are very cut off. Yeah. We're cut off from our grief. We're cut off from the experience of death and dying. And so it can feel very disconcerting to, to speak about it or to read about it in any kind of up-close way, which is exactly why we should be thinking about it more differently. Like you talk about practicing our death, which I'll um, bring up a little bit later. But um, I think that what you have in there about the history of how this has worked among humans, about how people have been much closer and even cared for the bodies of the dead, um, that's been normal. And now it's abnormal. So one of the things I wanted to bring out um, kind of right away, too, is that this book seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm fine with being corrected that I'm wrong. It happens enough times. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they, um, this book also seemed like a process of some of your own grief with your father's death. And on yeah. page 233, you write... Um, Grief over my dad is a complicated grief. I grieve that we, as his daughters, didn't have tender moments with our father. I grieve for my dad and what he lost, for what he could have known about love, humility, vulnerability, if he had been able to embrace his painful loss of control and then embrace us fully with all the ways that our emotions made him feel weak. I miss my father when I read his one-line emails that say, I love you dearly, or when I remember the tender moments when he was able to emerge from his self-imposed isolation into the world of love that filled the home my mom created, I miss him when I can accept my own failures, when I can see that we are all caught up in our 
own desperate attempts to cope with death. Maybe we miss our loved ones when we are able to remember the ways they gave us parts of themselves to us. A good death doesn't just happen. It accompanies a certain type of life, a life in which we have practiced dying. If we really allowed ourselves to think about it, what would our hopes for be for a good death? How do we hope our mothers, fathers, or grandparents will die? What do we wish for our own deaths? Uh, there's a lot of those really poignant moments. And um, thank you for sharing that so vulnerably, too, about the process of understanding your own father's death and his life. What would you like to say about that? Well, I think for sure this was uh, a working through of my own grief. And I think that's, it came, let's see, we moved in 2017 to Ohio where we live now. And he died, uh, he had died that early that February. And I was writing this uh, 2019. So, you know, we had had a lot happen. I had had a baby, we moved, uh, changed careers. Um moved into a new house. And so I think some of that made it difficult to process the grief that I was experiencing with my dad's death. And so it really was so painful, but also really um, good for me to write about this. And, and I, mm. that's generally how I process things too. I guess that's why I'm a writer um, mm-hmm. is I write in order to articulate how I feel um, in order to f- even figure out how I feel and find meaning behind it. Um, so yeah, it really, it really helped to be doing this, to be grieving through this book. Um, and it's one of the many reasons why I wanted to write this book and to help others if, if they felt any resonance with this, if they felt any, they saw themselves at all in this, um, Mm -hmm. to help them to be able to articulate what they were feeling as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did find it really helpful. I lost my dad when I was 20, Mm. I was a sophomore in college, and it was very sudden. He was very young, and and, uh, it was out of nowhere. And I know that I still grieve him. I still miss him. Mm. I still, you know, all the things that come up in my life as milestones or my children's lives, um, I think uh, he's missing out on on it. And it, it brings up the loss again, it brings up the grief again. But it also his losing him has taught me so much about life mm-hmm. too. Yeah. That it's part of my formation. Like it's part of my spiritual formation. And you know, you never would wish that on anyone. But at the same time I know that his death has made me who I am, what I read, what I think about, mm-hmm. how I want to live my life, how I want to connect with my children. Yeah your life and your death, like you're talking about the kind of life um, you want to lead. Considering our deaths really does make a huge difference on the lives we lead. I I think your point is so potent that if we're running away from our mortality and our eventual deaths, we're also running away from our lives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's sort of like what poets or or artists of any type do. I mean, they hmm. they stop. And if whenever I've written a poem, I've stopped, and I've had to be quiet. And you know, if I'm describing a blade of grass, I'm looking at that blade of grass, and everything else disappears. Right. So hmm. when you're 
um, remembering your death or, um, you know, meditating on your death, it really does make life become more uh, close up in that way. You're able to mm-hmm. see um, the most important things in life a little bit more clearly. Um, if, mm-hmm. if you acknowledge that you're going to die, then your life here has um, deeper meaning and it's important mm-hmm. what we do. It's important how we live. It's important how we treat other people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in the, in the Christian faith, uh, there's so much, <laughs> there's so uh, one priest said the Christian faith whispers memento more. It's, you know, there's so mm-hmm. many um, cycles of death in the Christian faith and there's so much important mm-hmm. meaning about um, that resurrection is our hope. And yet we're living in the not yet. And part of mm-hmm. living in the not yet is, is grieving and, uh, being aware that that this is temporary, hmm. right? And memento mori is about remembering your own death. Mm-hmm. And there are many. You talk about the many little deaths too. Yeah, um, I, I found that very powerful. Do you mind speaking a little bit to these little deaths that we practice in order to get toward the final one? Well, when I say little death, I mean I don't mean little in that it doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. in our lives, but I, I mean, yeah. little compared to big death, the, you know, the final death um, that we mm-hmm. experience or even the death of other people. But I think these little deaths can be uh, lots of different things. You know, they can be a divorce, they can be a betrayal or job loss or, um, you know, all kinds of things that feel like great losses to us in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the way that we, um, experience those things and um, intentionally lean into those things, I think Mm -hmm. is practice for the way we um, approach our own death. Because if we're, if we, Mm -hmm. if we tighten up and we, we, we refuse to grieve these other things and um, we refuse to allow ourselves to experience loss of any kind, then that's how Mm -hmm. we're going to die. Most likely Um, if we won't allow Uh, ourselves to be out of control, then we're going to die that way, or we're going to feel the the loss, or we're not going to allow ourselves to feel the loss when other people in our lives die. So I think it is a a practice, uh, as spiritual practices are, you know, practicing beforehand as disciplines um, to meet our own death. Yeah. In this book, you are particularly drawing on life-giving lessons from the mystics Mm -hmm. and instead of just doing something from your experience or something from history you're drawing on some of these the word mystic for some people isn't going to make any sense now people who listen to this program all the time are inundated a little bit (laughs) (laughs) but if we have some newbies um (laughs) why is it that you approach the book from some of those angles um i well i think the mystics are part of how I was awakened to my own death in a way. I think mm. in my own life personally, I started reading about the mystics uh, for the first time several years ago when I was experiencing anxiety and depression. Um, and it was the the worst I had experienced it before. And I even had um, thoughts of feeling like I wanted to die and that was the same time that I discovered the mystics. And 
they were a way in for me into the mystery and the paradox that we're so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think in my mind, those, those two things became melded, the mystics and death Mm -hmm. and seeing Mm -hmm. how they um, throughout history have approached death in their own weird time periods, the way their time periods approached death um, Mm -hmm. was really helpful to me to give some perspective on some spiritual guidance on how we might do that Mm -hmm. now and how I might do that in my own life. One particular thing that really stood out to me um, was how you talk about the Reformation, uh, individualism, enlightenment, and this sort of historic precedent for seeing ourselves differently and encountering mortality differently. I thought that was, I guess, maybe I just hadn't picked up on it before, but when I read it, I was like, well, that explains a lot. Um, <laughs> Me too. About, I was like, good gracious. Um, Can we go back a little bit? <laughs> wait a second here. So there's one part where you talk about, you said Christian humanists, many of them reformers, rejected hierarchy in favor of the individual. We're talking about really hierarchy in the church, but not just the church, but like how society was really held together and and who could stand before God without a mediator. And so in this, you say, in this way of thinking, not living a good life would be the only reason to fear death and fearing it seemed irrational or even damnable. Mm -hmm. And um, so that it would look like you were, if you were doubting your faith or doubting, um, if you had had a good life, then, you know, it, it's really interesting because instead of being held by the church, in a sense, you it's you and God kind of striking it out on your own. Mm-hmm. So that if you have a fear of death, you must have really screwed up with God or yeah. something. It's not just a yeah. existential a issue. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is that nobody, we haven't experienced death before. And so it would be just the unknown that would be scary mm-hmm. in the first place, mm-hmm. besides whatever else just at the very least the unknown would be scary right Right. but then the pressure of thinking oh i must be perhaps damned or uh, not living a good life if i'm afraid of death is just a fascinating switcheroo Mm -hmm. that happens around this time (laughs) and so you talk about how death is this prowling uh starts to appear like this prowling figure that wants to kind of pounce on us and it's it's a whole different way of perceiving death in art of course too but in the imagination and and how people approach it so really what people start doing is kind of stuffing down and repressing or suppressing their fears Mm -hmm. of death which are like any other mammal will have (laughs) like not want to die right it's our survival instinct right (laughs) right it's just kind of built in so we don't go flinging ourselves off a cliffs or something. <laughs> and, and it's just like, it has to be there. So it's interesting how like unnatural that actually is. That sort of new response to death mm-hmm. is uh, something that should be hidden and you should. And so it was really interesting. I liked on page um, 76, you talk about Francis de Sales and his, fear and terror. Maybe you could go into a little bit of what he struggled with and kind of the milieu of what was happening at the time 
and, and kind of what they were struggling with as, as humans, just um, with the situation of, of change. Yeah, well, I, I really, I love St. Francis de Sales because I think he's mm. a figure um, who had so much compassion in his older years. He was a bishop and he counts, he was known as being very pastoral. And I think a lot of that is because of, he had this, this episode when he was young in college, probably in college or seminary, where they were having debates about um, predestination. And mm. this was obviously not, uh, this was brought on by, by the reformers, by the Calvinists. You know, I felt such a kinship with him because it was almost like, and I, tr- I tried to characterize this in a book, in the book of what it would feel like to have obsessive thoughts and an anxiety attack. Mm. Because I knew I know so much what that feels like, and so reading mm. about his terror—I mean, he had absolute mm. terror that he he made himself sick from from this terror and fear—and you know, kind of the way mis- a lot of mystics see um, really dark things um, in their encounters. He was terrified that he was damned to hell and that he could do nothing about it, which is one of the challenges of that Calvinist way of thinking. And it was before the the feet of the Black Madonna of Paris that he mm. heard Mary uh, speaking to him and that he had, a, had kind of a, a, a vision of mm-hmm. uh, peace and that he felt sort of that fear uh, leaving him. And so then he writes uh, in his later years, he writes these beautiful letters to people who are talking about being afraid of death. And he understands the fear because he was there too. So I think it's such a beautiful, uh, someone who used that fear being, being in that time period and used that to pastor others in that fear and kind of helping them move out of that sort of locked into that individualistic terror, you know, this is only between me and God and, and I, all, all that pressure that can cause, you know, that cause mm-hmm. the repression of the fear and then it makes it worse. Um, mm. So I just love his example and how he was able to, to bring that to help other people in his life. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can put it into context of in the past there had you talk about the dance of death and some of the other ways people had approached death as part of life or the next stage or something like that. It hadn't been this big, if you're afraid, you're probably going to hell sort of scenario. What were some of the other ways people had encountered it before, especially in the church? Well, I think in the medieval world, particularly surrounding the Black Death, I mean, people were dying in such enormous numbers. I mean, we think of the pandemic Mm -hmm. now, um, people mm. were, I think up to 60% of Europe was decimated, um, mm. after the black death. So just a uh, numbers that are uh, hard to, for us to imagine, um, yeah. even with a pandemic now, how could that even be something that we're thinking about? Because of course you're going to be afraid of death. Death involves mm-hmm. horrendous pain and grotesque things happening to your body. And mm-hmm. so the idea that, we would damn someone for being afraid. It, it seems a little bit silly. Um, and maybe they just didn't mm. have time for it. They were just <laughs> trying to survive. Um, I think the mm. fear at that point in time was, uh, I think there still was a fear of hell, especially because mm. 
a lot of priests and clergy were dying. And so Mm -hmm. these rituals in the Catholic church of these rituals that would, that they would do when someone was dying were Mm -hmm. in order to keep them from going to hell (laughs) were being lost because Mm -hmm. the priests were, were dying as well. So they Mm -hmm. came up with these uh, religious texts to help people who didn't have a priest um, Mm. to walk through helping someone die or blessing them or preparing them for the afterlife. So I think, you know, there are ways that they, they found to get around it. I I certainly don't think that they, um, that that meant that they were more at peace with death. Uh, Mm. They, there's all of these texts where they talk about how awful aging and death is, but at least they Mm. were, you know, they were confronting it. I mean, you can see in, in the artwork, in the cadaver tombs, in these sculptures that they would have of rotting bodies, you know, they were like, this is what's happening to us. Uh, Mm. So it it emerges into their art um, as these visual symbols of, of the things that they're experiencing. And then I think with Mm. the Reformation, um, you sort of see this tightening. I, it feels tight even when I read about it. It, f- it makes me feel tight mm. inside. That just sort of suppression mm-hmm. of and repression of fear um, mm-hmm. that came with a lot of the Reformation thinkers, I think. Yeah, and then coordinate that too with the rise of uh, the age of reason and science and what maybe that can be overcome if we just right. have the right science. Right. Uh, and that it's it's kind of seen as as this mortal enemy of life instead of the natural thing that happens to all mortals. There's so much going on there in, in modern time, if we would maybe call it modernity or modern times, that um, what we're left with today, I thought we would talk a little bit about what death doulas are um, and this kind of new accompaniment that is happening somewhat through the hospice movement as well um, but death doulas serve this really a ministry function I think and it kind of is helping us get reacquainted with something that's deeply part of our our lives our families um, our futures yeah I think death doulas are a really beautiful thing that I you know, on the one hand, makes me sad that they're necessary. But I think that Mm -hmm. they're filling this gap where uh, a lot of the rituals and the sacredness that accompany death um, used to be filled by our religious institutions and our communities of faith. Mm -hmm. And I think now that um, people are skeptical of of these institutions, and so... Mm -hmm. But they're but they're finding the loss. I think in a way, it, it there is a little bit of a parallel with the Reformation. Oddly enough, uh, that when the Reformation mm. happened, um, people wanted nothing to do with the Catholic Church. Uh, they wanted mm-hmm. they kind of threw out a lot of Catholic tradition, traditions, and therefore they threw out a lot of death rituals that had been mm. a, uh, an ancient part of uh, the church just the church, the wide mm-hmm. church. Um, and suddenly they were left with, how do we do this now? We don't want to do it like mm-hmm. the Catholic church, but we don't have our own r- rituals. Um, and so yeah. in a way, now that um, a lot of people aren't a part of communities of faith anymore, um, they, they, they feel that whole of uh, the sacredness of death. So how do we find those rituals? How do we walk through death when we don't have the rituals that, um, our ancestors had. And so I think death mm. doulas can help 
um, people both both be in um, ha- provide connection for people who are alone in dying and mm. help them see the sacredness inherent in life and death. Mm. There's a part in your book on page 146, and there's there's two points uh, that I wanted to draw out that I thought were really fascinating, too, is how um, our fears of death now come out in really neurotic ways, especially in fears for our children's safety. Um, you say we're often rooted in the neurotic fear of death, and they can also harm our children who are truly vulnerable. You talk about how we are people who become fearful of safe places because the data shows that there are 40% fewer missing children than 10 years ago, even though the population's increased by 30%. Uh, and people are afraid, you know, maybe that has a lot to do with a 24-hour news cycle of yeah, horrible think. news all the time. You think. It can kind of be brainwashing us. Yeah. But we feel neurotic uh, about loss and death mm-hmm. and and all of its friends mm-hmm. um and then also the tie into that um i'm not gonna i'm not sure if i'm gonna say this right to taliban chiku her quote is that racism violence trauma human destruction and hate are all endemic of local national and worldwide atrocities and epitomize the reality of attempting to delay one's mortality mm-hmm. That was so insightful because it's all these kinds of othering that are neurotic that kind of push off to the side our own humanity. If we're distancing other people and their humanity, we're distancing our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really brilliant and insightful way of showing us ourselves we're not familiar with ourselves. We're not familiar with our mortality. We're not familiar with our future yeah. and not just we're scared of our future which is going to be the natural future that every other human has had right 100% 100% of us will end that way <laughs> right right there's no exceptions no, here no understandably it's going to be confusing frightening but at the same time those neurotic things i think it was carl jung who said neuroses is a substitute for legitimate suffering mm-hmm. what we're doing you know we're yeah. we're not going to suffer legitimately yeah. in a way that would be natural and move toward a healing wholeness and healing process we'll suffer neurotically where it doesn't make sense and doesn't go anywhere it just kind of spins on itself yeah. <laughs> and then wonder why we don't feel better later mm-hmm. Because suffering is a fact of life. Suffering will happen Mm. to us. And I think Mm -hmm. suppressing or trying to ignore it or trying to avoid it, I mean, as we see, it will turn to neuroses because it Mm -hmm. it will not be (laughs) repressed. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're not in most of us. I mean, most of us probably listening are not 
just surviving. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on your audience, but most of us w- would probably be more likely to be in the neurotic anxiety level of um, when we're, when our alert physical needs are taken care of, then we start mm. spinning a little bit and then we kind of get obsessed mm-hmm. with continuing that um, level of comfort and level of security. And so then we become obsessed with, you know, what happens to our children. I mean, of course I have four children. Mm-hmm. I, I never want anything to happen to them, but mm-hmm. in trying to protect them from every eventuality, I'm actually causing more anxiety both for them and for myself. And I, I struggle with this too. I mean, we live in mm-hmm. what was named one of the nicest places in America. It's this beautiful small town that we live in. It's one of the safest places you can be. And yet it's, mm-hmm. it's not very usual for kids to be riding their bikes to their friends' houses. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Kids are not outdoors mm-hmm. all the time the way they used to be many years mm-hmm. ago. I had a, a conversation with a woman in a local shop who was afraid that her teenage daughter was going to be sold into sex traffic. <laughs> like that's not the way sex mm-hmm. trafficking works, you know? And so that, that mm-hmm. fear and the obsessive anxiety of that actually mm-hmm. turns us away from the realities of some people who, who are mm-hmm. vulnerable. You know, it makes us focus more on our fears and our comforts rather than how can we help people who are actually vulnerable? How can we care for kids mm-hmm. who are actually vulnerable? It keeps comfort as our primary um, objective. Like I want to make sure I'm safe and comfortable and that's it. <laughs> you know, um, when actually you weren't that unsafe to begin with and the threat of being slightly uncomfortable is actually worse then whatever will happen. Sex trafficking happens to runaways. It happens to undocumented people. It happens to people who are abused and already in vulnerable situations uh, where there's already abuse and and drug addiction. And and if that isn't your story, you could probably be doing something to help than just being afraid it's going to happen to you. And it's really an interesting... I guess, neurotic response. And it doesn't help that you hear a lot of bad things in a given week about things happening to children to kind of feed that fear, feed those those fears and stuff. I was, um, in my own book, I talk about the via negativa. And I was interested to hear you describe what via negativa is. And this is this is something I'd like to kind of unpack a little bit with you. And so if somebody were to say to you, explain via negativa, what are we speaking of when we say that? Yeah, you probably know more about it if you've studied it more. But I was fascinated by this, too, because I think a lot of uh, mm-hmm. many of the mystics uh, write about God in this way. And, and that mm-hmm. is um, we know that <laughs> this is, it, it is paradoxical, <laughs> so it's hard to speak about. <laughs> we know God by knowing that we cannot know God. <laughs> That because God is Mm -hmm. so wholly other and beyond us, any metaphor Mm -hmm. falls short uh, to describe God. Mm -hmm. So instead of the the ways that we a lot of us speak about God as God is love, God is perfection, that we Mm -hmm. sort of talk more about the hiddenness of God um, and Mm. the silence of God. And I think 
St. John of the Cross is, is probably well known, most well known for this, uh, speaking about the dark night of the soul and mm-hmm. the ways that God uh, is hidden from us and mm-hmm. too unknowable to speak about. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think we should always talk about God this way because uh, mm-hmm. I think we need those positive aspects of God and, and to know metaphorically who God is. But I think it's helpful mm-hmm. when we are um, in these seasons of grief and death. And even mm-hmm. as Advent is approaching, I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of good parallels with Advent. Um, or maybe as this podcast comes out, it is during Advent. That Advent, mm-hmm. as Fleming Rutledge says, Advent begins in the dark. You know, Advent mm-hmm. um, talks uh, uh, helps us lean into the paradox of the not yet that um, Mm. we're longing for uh, this Christ child to come who has to, in the Christian faith, we believe Jesus has already been born, Mm -hmm. but we're also in this time of, um, you know, we say that Jesus has conquered death and yet we still have to experience death. And that brings up a lot Mm. of questions. Why, why do we have to die? Why doesn't God make everything new? Um, Why is there suffering? Um, And I think, that's and for me that's part of the via negativa is a lot of questions and the, the unknown and the mystery and the paradox that's also inherent in death yeah yeah it's a great way when when stuff stops making sense mm-hmm. that's when to me we intersect with the via negativa because mm-hmm. the the cataphatic way of like you're saying god is love you know god's a good shepherd and then something might happen, and all of a sudden, like, for instance, the silence of God, mm-hmm. you'll think, wait a sec. Yep. <laughs> I thought we had a deal. Yep. We were fine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was great. until, yeah. And then that's like the, the dark night or, or just the darkness. And we see darkness, but God, there is no darkness to God, right? Mm-hmm. So we hear silence. But silence is the language of God. So there's all these interesting paradoxes where we just don't know enough yet or maybe can never know. And that's why death is so weird and interesting. It's like God is a living God. Mm -hmm. So, but there's death. Oh, but God conquers death. But it's like, yeah, Yeah, but we're still dying. Right. Right. It's kind of like the already and not the not yet. Mm -hmm. And we do live in a a world of many contradictions, Mm -hmm. of many puzzles and paradoxes. And for me, the when stuff stops making sense and God blows up the boxes that were really just idols, we had God in these little idol boxes that were supposed to make sense. They stop working. That's, I think, a, a call, a divine call to the unknown, the walk of faith, really, and then the the way of, in a sense, not knowing. Right. It's come and come into new territory, right. and it it is very strange. And I think it is better that you you learn the stuff first, and then you kind of have to unlearn it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it would go the other way around. But I'm not yeah. an Orthodox Christian where they're much more on that end of, <laughs> of mystery. They can handle it. <laughs> But yeah, I I think that when we're talking about death, being comfortable, maybe not even comfortable is the word, but being open to mystery 
and things not making sense, mm-hmm. instead of resisting that and fighting it off tooth and nail, is going to be a way we can gain some ground and, and have a little bit of solace. Yeah, I, I, I'm 100%. You're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people um, will see, will hear the word negativa and they'll think, oh, that must be bad because it's negative, right? right? So it's right. So that it's a confusion of terms mm-hmm. sometimes, and uh, the negative way doesn't mean doesn't mean we speak the of, bad yeah, way speak or, of God negatively, or yeah, we're not speaking right. of God, right? Yeah. So it's it can be a little confusing, but I think it's kind of the the obscure way, the way we don't know which way to go. Yeah. And yet, a lot of life is is obscured to us. It is. You know, we don't know the future, and then. People try to figure that one out with, you know, give me a sign, God, or go to palm readers or read their horoscope or whatever, mm-hmm. read their Enneagram, <laughs> a little cheat, cheat codes. Right. It only takes us so far. And I think, you know, even in the church, that, that theology, I think there, as you said, I think there's a time for us, maybe when we're younger in our faith, to have, to need those black and white answers, to need God to be love. And I mean, I still believe God is love, but to need that mm-hmm. more controlled boxed in vision of God, because we, we can't handle uh, yet. We have that kind of is our base, our, our foundation, but, mm-hmm. but we can't live there because that's not, that's not what life is. And I think when we do mm-hmm. face death and suffering and, uh, it explodes all of those things. It breaks open the box. It's not that God mm-hmm. was not there, was small. It's that our vision of God was small. Um, and that's where, mm-hmm. you know, le- living in that space of, of mystery and paradox and being, allowing that to be there and allowing there to be hiddenness and silence um, mm-hmm. is, is a part of, I think, spiritual maturity. I mean, I think the most spiritually mm-hmm. mature people I know are um have deep faith um and believe things and yet they're humble in not you know i i believe this but i don't know you know and and that's okay the older i get the the less the more i realize what i don't know and i think that's actually part of some of the history of via negativa is um learning it's not that you don't know a lot and you don't know that you don't know a lot. It's that you see enough to know how little, you know, and even that knowledge Mm. itself of knowing, Oh, I, there's so much, I don't know is, Mm -hmm. is knowledge, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's important mature knowledge to have um, in order to face what comes through life and normal human experiences. Yeah, and it's. I think it's like that hot, hard-fought wisdom, because I, I remember thinking, um, it's it's also like ego destroying. Yes, it <laughs> like should be. Hubris <laughs> destroying. It's exactly yeah. It's this undoing, mm-hmm. and you're and you're thinking, wow, I I remember when I knew everything. Right. <laughs> well, right. I was in my twenties. I knew everything. I know. People could ask me questions. I'd have an answer. Wasn't that I so was like fun? A genius. That was so fun. Yeah, to know like, everything. Dang. Yeah. It was. It was just a wonderful delusion. It was. But at, at, there's a point 
when you when enough stuff hits you that you don't have the answers for and then you're like oh actually i never had the answers right. hmm but what's interesting is that i remember coming to this point of insight where i thought um what if i'm just open to the idea that i don't know yet yeah. i or might not know what if i'm just open in general to the idea that don't have your mind made up about what this means. Mm-hmm. Does it mean I'm on the outs with God? Don't have your mind made up about that. Does it mean um, <laughs> you're, you know, abandoned by God? Don't have your mind made up yeah. about that. You know, just this whole idea of don't make up your mind about something you don't have a clue about right. uh, was this huge revelation that shows you how <laughs> how immature I was. <laughs> I think that's a sign of more maturity. <laughs> eventually, yeah, eventually more maturity. But, um, but these kind of, you know, I think I'm going to figure out the world, and then you, you go along and you go along. You read a lot of things. You think you know stuff, and then stuff hits you, and you're like, wow, this is really a lot different than the books are telling me, and this is really a lot different than I, than the spiritual leaders were telling me, because when it hits the fan, what are you going to really believe? Is God to be trusted? You know, um, so it's, it's very interesting. If you want to, you can either become, you can maybe become bitter, agnostic, you know, lose whatever faith you have, or you can go into the mysteries and say, yeah, this is a walk of faith and it is a life of grace. And boy, I I really don't know. Well, and the mystics are Um, there. That's where, I mean, for me, that's That's when I found the mystics because maybe our our contemporary religious leaders in a lot of ways don't want us to think that or maybe haven't. But our ancient Mm -hmm. uh, religious teachers are there with us and saying, yes, you know, that's what's comforting to me is this has been part of our human experience and spiritual life since the beginning. And to, to read these mystics, even in the medieval times, experiencing this and Julian of Norwich experiencing the darkness and mm-hmm. needing Jesus to say when all was lost, needing Jesus to say all will be well. I think that's why that's such an enriching thing for us because it resonates throughout time. Things we experience are, have always been there. Well, that might be a good place to wrap things up. Do you want to share where people can find your book which is probably all the normal places but where else they can find you online yeah i have a website uh christiana in peterson.com you know you can find my books wherever books are sold um i i do social media but i'm most on instagram so i would say christiana in pete or awakened by death i have two instagram accounts and allow anybody who's been within the grief kind of blindsided away from it and i think death or suffering i I don't want people to be afraid to read my book what would you suggest (laughs) you know there may be needs to be a a trigger warning if you have experienced death or grief that there will be overwhelming that they haven't really been prepared for like that my hope for any reader i have is that um, it will be a, a meditative way for you in a safe place to think more about your death and mm. bring up conversations with the people that you love who maybe also need to think about death and that, that it will be mm-hmm. enriching for yeah. your life, not depressing or morbid, but that it will resonate with you and give you some ways to articulate things that maybe you haven't tried to before. 
Well, thank you, Lisa. I always enjoy talking to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. This has been really good. I appreciate that.